Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason, and we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm yours, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on the 22nd day of August 2017 from Sully Baseball Studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. This is a specific podcast to fulfill the needs of a specific listener. Uh, He goes, I don't know this person's name. I've never met them. They live at Cumberland of the, um, the Isle of Wright, White, I don't know. The, you, you should know, I don't know. He's a Red Sox fan, not living in this country. He goes by the name P.L.D., a husband, a dog walker, a runner. His uh, Twitter handle is P.L.D. 3009, a supporter of the Working Town uh, Football Club. I'm guessing this fellow's in England. I'm gonna. I'm, that's my detective skills at work there. I'm guessing he's in England. Uh, Mark Blakeborn, OOTP Baseball, also follow him. It, all the signs are pointing that PLD 3009 is a who's a lover of the Cumberland sausage baguettes. I don't know what that means, but he is a listener of the Sully Baseball Podcast, and he wrote to your pal Sully via the Twitterverse and said, I also wrote to Sox Prospects, he said, guys need podcasts, Why, uh, you know, he, he needs some podcasts because his wife has a shopping trip planned, he needs something to listen to while he's waiting outside shopping, and I get it, I get it, now there are podcasts that I love, and I love listening to, I, love, I listen to uh, Never Not Funny all the time, with Jimmy Pardo, I listened to Jackie Cation and Lori Kilmartin's podcast and Jackie Cation's other podcast, which is uh, called The uh, the Dork Forest. Uh, I listened to uh, uh, Friends Like Us with uh, Marina Franklin. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, I listened to the Star Trek Minute, the Indiana Jones Minute, the Rocketeer Minute, all the Minute podcasts. I'm going to be on uh, some episodes of the Aliens Minute and on the Rocky Minute. So I get it, and I get it. I listen. There's a lot of podcasts I listen to. Your pal Sully understands, and I also understand the time when you're bored out of your mind. It isn't always when my wife shops. So there's other stuff that happens. I went to Home Depot earlier today. Your pal Sully is never ever comfortable in Home Depot. It's like in the belly of the beast. So I get it. So I'm recording this one specifically for you, pal. Specifically for you while you're bored. And outside shopping. Hey, um, I used to do a podcast every single day. I now do it, you know, at least once a week, sometimes a few times a week. And I've never done one during a total eclipse. And I still haven't done one. But I will make sure that next time there's a total eclipse, I will have a podcast ready for that. I hope you all had a fun eclipse day yesterday. I hope none of you did what our president did, which was stare at it. Uh, this is not a political podcast. I will say a few things that may be politically charged about some topics, but not today, because I'm here because a fella in England's bored out of his skull while his wife is shopping. So let me tell you what I want, because we're at that point of the year where looking at the playoff matchups is not an act of futility, but actually 
an act of necessity. It's the 22nd day of August. We are in late August. And not only does my New England accent come out very strongly when I say August, also when I say the word taco. It cracks my wife up every time I say the word taco. But we are in a situation where looking at potential playoff matchups is actually kind of sort of a forecast of where we are and who we are. Now, the Red Sox lost a very stupid game yesterday. I can't really get too mad at the Red Sox, even though the uh, Farrell made some bizarre decisions. Uh, the fact of the matter is the Red Sox have won a ton of games late recently. A lot of come-from-behind wins. A lot of games that I said, Do you know what, I, I don't see it happening, and they wound up winning it. So the fact that they lost one of those games uh, you know, they, they've won more than those and they've lost recently, so I can't complain too much. And I will say that I'm completely standing by my prediction that I made at the beginning of the year and midway through the year. Uh, I know the Red Sox have the second best record in the American League. I know the Astros have the best record in the American League. I still do not see a team other than Cleveland winning the American League pennant right now. Uh, and I think that's partly because, now, a lot of it has to do with Andrew Miller. A lot of it has to do with him being healthy. Now, he wasn't healthy the other day. He's back on the disabled list. And that's a, that's a, uh, a concern if you're an Indians fan. But that being said, the Indians, are they're going to win the division. I mean, they, they're up by six games in the loss column with, um, you know, 30-something left to play. Uh, the fact that they're getting good starting pitching, they still have a good bullpen. It's it's be spectacular with Andrew Miller, and they have Corey Kluber, who could neutralize Dallas Keuchel of the Astros and Chris Sale of the Red Sox. I I absolutely believe that the Cleveland Indians are the American League pennant winners. And that being said, I think they are a sure lock than the Dodgers are for winning the National League pennant. For the reason that, look at the Dodgers. The Dodgers are going to win ninety games. A uh, ninety-win season's a success, no matter what your metric is. The Dodgers are going to win ninety games before August is over. They're easily going to win a hundred games. They'll probably win hundred and ten games. That being said, I, I don't think they're a lock to win the pennant. I think Washington. I'm not just saying this because friend of the podcast Sean Doolittle's on there. Would you be stunned if Scherzer? wins two games against L.A. in a National League Championship Series? If it turns out to be Washington-L.A., would you be stunned if Scherzer won two starts? Okay, probably not. Would you be stunned if Strasburg wins a start? No, probably not. If that's the case, then the worst-case scenario for Washington is they're playing a Game 7. And anything can happen in a Game 7. I think Washington... Los Angeles, forget the win-loss record. Washington's going to win 90-some-odd games. Los Angeles is going to win like 110. I think they're evenly matched in a postseason series. Not in 162 games. I think in the best of seven, it's going to be Washington, L.A. I think that's a borderline coin flip. I think the Indians are a better lock in the American League than the Dodgers are in the National League. And that would be interesting 
if it's Cleveland, Washington, because it would be the second straight year where you have two cities starved for a world championship facing off. Anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because it comes down to the point less of what I think what will happen and more of what I want to happen. The National League is pretty much, you have a good idea of what it is. The only thing really up in the air right now is the National League Central. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, the Brewers are four games back in the loss column of Chicago, as are the Cardinals. The Pirates have fallen off. Uh, You know, the Cubs will have to have a really bad, bad September to let either the Cardinals or the Brewers catch them. Four games in the loss column is a lot. You got to make that. That's a lot of games you have to make up. And I think the Cubs are, you know, again, Lester's hurt. The Cubs are not the super team they were last year, but they've won a bunch of games, including the other day in their last at bat. I I just think the Cubs are going to wind up winning that division. And I think that it it will be a lousy September for, for the Cubs to make it interesting. Everything else, the Nationals, the Dodgers, I believe the the Diamondbacks and the Rockies are pretty much secure in that wildcard spot. And the only thing left to see is the Central. The American League, I think the three division winners are pretty much locked in. Unless Boston has a cal- absolute calamitous uh, September. But I think the fact that they've played the Yankees head to head quite well, uh, I think will we'll fare well for them. You know, even if they wind up losing, you know, the Red Sox will win the division by three or four games. The Indians should win the division by six or seven games, and the Astros have it locked up. Okay. I got all that out of the way, because here's what I want to talk about. I've talked a lot about the American League wild card, and I've made no bones about the fact, I mean, I've not been subtle about the fact that I'm not a Yankee fan, and while I certainly respect the hell out of what the Yankees are doing. And I think the Yankees have actually put together a really nice team and, you know, should be in a situation where they're going to, I mean, what they're, they're playing uh 537 ball right now. Now let's figure out 537 ball for the length of a season is 86 wins. That sounds about right. There's about 86, 87 wins. And I think that, I think they'll probably wind up winning anywhere between 85 to 87 wins. I think that's about the team that they are. I think the Red Sox will win 90-something, and that's the team that they are. But that being said, you're seeing right now there's an absolute scrum for the American League wildcard. Now, I've talked about the significance of this. As much as I just tooted the horn of the Cleveland Indians, they are not a perfect team. And if by some miracle the Red Sox find a way to eliminate them in the division series, then that would bring a pretty flawed, a good but flawed Red Sox team into the American League Championship Series. The Astros are a very flawed top seed. The Yankees are a beatable team. If you are an American League wildcard team, you have a shot to win the pennant. You do. Not a super shot against Cleveland, but every other team other than Cleveland, I would say, are borderline evenly matched. And so when you look at the wild card, the Yankees are up by three games in the lost column on the Twins. 
for the lead. The Twins right now, as I'm recording this, are the second wildcard team. But that's precarious at best as the Angels are a half game out, the Mariners are a game out, the Royals are a game and a half out, Texas, who already you know threw in the towel for the season by training Darvish, are only two games out, Baltimore's three and a half out, Tampa's four games out, Toronto's five games out. I've talked about this ad nauseum, but I wanted to talk a little more specifically. What do I want? Given the assumption that the Yankees are going to be one of the wildcard teams, Okay, that being said, let's take a record. Let's say, you know, you look at these teams, and they're all, other than the Yankees, they're all hovering around 500. A couple of games above, a couple of games below. Rangers are even 500. What if the Yankees, Twins, Angels, Royals, Rangers, Orioles, Rays, and Blue Jays all finished the season 83 and 79. Every, every one of these teams have a, anywhere between 36 to 39 games left. What would it take for them to all finish 83 and 79? In order for that to happen, the Yankees would have to finish the season, season Sorry, 17 and 22, five games under 500 for the rest of the year. Now, that would be a bad final 39 games, but that's not like an unreasonable. It's not outlandish. It's not like saying they'll, they're going to lose 30 of their last 39 games. No, that's losing 22 of their last 39 games, a winning percentage of 436, which is not good. I will admit that's not good and probably not going to happen. But it's not crazy to say the Yankees finished the season five games under 500 for the rest of the way. You've seen teams do that. If that happens, okay. And then the Minnesota Twins finish the t- season splitting their final 38 games, going 19 and 19. Not only is that possible, that's probable. When you consider that they're starting. They have two good starting pitchers, Barris and uh, Santana. The rest of the starting pitching stinks, and they've been hovering around 500 for the whole season, kind of overachieving. To say, "Yep, yeah, they'll split the final 38 games. That'll get them at 38. They'll get them at 83 and 79." Okay. Let's say the Angels finish their final 37 games, one game above 500. Again, that's not crazy. When you consider the fact that they're going to be playing with a really iffy starting rotation, and they're you know barely above 500 now, yeah, they basically keep up that. They're playing at a 512 winning clip for the season. They finish the season with a 514 winning percentage, roughly the same percentage points away. That's not crazy. You have the Royals. Let's say the Royals get off to a final, you know, a nice big push at the end, going 28 and 18. Again, I'm not saying anything like the collapse of the 2011 Red Sox or the great run that the Rockies had at the end of 2007. I'm saying that's a reasonable final. Let's say for the final 39 games, they go 21 and 18. That's not crazy. And same thing for the Rangers. Wow, look at that. The Rangers put together a 21-17 and 17 run. 
for the final 38 games. Again, good. Not spectacular, but good. And along the way, the Orioles find that they're winning ways. They play a bunch of teams at the end of their rope. They finish the season 22 and 15. Not saying anything out of, not saying anything unrealistic. And that same stretch, the Rays, with their decent pitching, they'll have better pitching than most along the way. They go 22 and 14. Okay, that's a pretty great finale of the season. Finishing 6-11 ball, but it's still allowing for 14 losses. And then the Blue Jays, who a lot of people, including your pal Sully, picked to win a wild card spot, finished the season going 10 games above 500. All right, that's asking a lot, but again, that's not saying something superhuman. You've seen teams go 10 games over 500 over a stretch. Not one scenario that I just said was beyond the realm of possibility. The Yankees having a bad 39 final games of the season. The Blue Jays having an excellent 38 final games of the season. Everyone else playing to roughly what you'd expect. Roughly. If all those things happen that I just said exactly the way I just said, Then you'd have the Yankees, Twins, Angels, Royals, Rangers, Orioles, Rays, and Blue Jays with an eight-way tie for the American League wildcard. An eight-way tie for the wildcard. Which then you'd probably have to create a separate tournament. I mean, wouldn't you have to come up with something? Like, you know, uh, sort of a March Madness thing? You have to create a bracket. You know, I don't know how you would figure it out. Yankees would play the Blue Jays. Twins would play the Rays. Angels would play the Orioles. Royals would play the Rangers. Winner of the Yankees-Blue Jays play the winner of the uh, Royals-Rangers. Meanwhile, the winner of the Twins-Rays-Angels-Orioles play each other. And the winner of that's the wild card. All of a one-game elimination. Wouldn't that be the greatest thing you ever saw, wouldn't that just be the anarchy that you seek? And okay, let's take one of them out of the the equation. Let's take the Yankees out of the equation. And let's take another one out of the equation. Let's take the, uh, let's okay, let's take the Yankees, Rays, and Blue Jays out of the equation. Let's say the Yankees, they're just going to win. They're up by three games in the lost column. You know, they're not going to play 438 ball fine. All right. There you go. And the Rays and the Blue Jays are not going to play over 600 ball. Okay, fine. So you've eliminated the most outlandish ones. You still have a Twins, Angels, Royals, Rangers, and Orioles. One, two, three, four, five. There still is a scenario where nobody plays a below 500 and no one plays above 600 for the final 30 seven 38 games of the season that would mean a five-way tie for the second wild card spot that's i mean the idea of there being a playoff for the playoff is looking uh, not only possible but probable and the fact that multiple teams could be in there is is truly something amazing that could be on the table right now.
So what I'm saying is this. This is what I what I want, what I truly want, is for all this to happen and the Yankees go 16 and 23, finishing one game behind the seven game near the seven team scrum. That would be my ideal. But even me with this lunacy, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not even saying that at this point. I'm looking at it and saying all these teams that I just mentioned incredibly flawed and could match up well with Houston, the idea of them finishing with the same record, 83 and 79, again, a little bit above 500. That's not an outlandish. I'm not saying one's going to win 90 games, and I'm not saying that we're going to have a wild card team that's sub 500. I don't think either one of those are going to happen. I think 83 wins gets you in the dance this year. Think about that for a second. Think about the real possibility we have for, you know, realistically a five-team scrum and pushing the envelope a little bit, an eight-team scrum. Wouldn't that be the greatest beginning of the postseason you can imagine? Just for no other reason than thinking about the day-to-day matchups and assuming that every day you have to play as if the season's on the line because it kind of sort of is which means you have to start your best pitcher. You have to use your best. They're all game sevens. Of course, Houston would love that because by the end of that, you're probably starting your number four starter against Dallas Keuchel. That's what I want. Is it too much to want anarchy? I've talked about it before every year. I mean, every year around this time, the wild card looks like it's a little crowd and you have this little fantasy. What if this all happens? But... I've never seen an American league where it's this flawed. You know, that there's no... Cleveland's the closest thing we have to a can't-miss team, and they have the third-best record in the league. A team that would not have home field advantage in the division series is, in my opinion, the closest thing we have a lock in this league. So I make the point again. The Toronto Blue Jays... Fourth worst record in the league. Currently six games under 500. Has a pathway to the American League Championship Series. And that's going to make this the coolest month of them all. And something for my pal waiting for his wife to finish shopping to think about. Now, I want to just say one thing. I'm going to do a team that should have won, but I, I want to honor someone. Because he's worth honoring. And that's Jared Weaver. Jared Weaver retired the other day. He tried to come back with the San Diego Padres and it didn't work. He, he just he didn't have it anymore. And quite frankly, uh, he's not been a, a reliable pitcher for the last few years. He was, he was an 18-game winner, uh, 213 innings pitched, and with a 3.59 ERA for the Angels who won the division in 2014 uh and that was his last productive year he had a he had a mediocre 2015 uh despite winning 12 games in 2016 he actually had a bad season and then the the Angels didn't bring him back he tried to play with the Padres this year and he was he looked dreadful in his nine starts and he called it a career 
age 34, 12 seasons in the major leagues, 11 of them with the Angels. And he was a top five Cy Young vote getter for three straight years, 2010, 2011, and 2012. He was a he, out of the gate you know, rookie starting pitcher in 2006 with the Angels. And he had a really nice career. He was a, he is an all-star three times. Uh, he threw a no-hitter. Uh, twice led the league in victories, once led the league in strikeouts, and was a and had the lowest uh, WHIP in the American League in 2012, a year which was probably his best year. He was 20 and five that year. I know we're not supposed to look at win loss records. It was a 2.81 ERA. Um, you know, he had the lowest WHIP, the lowest hits per nine innings. He wound up finishing third in the Cy Young vote to. Verlander and Price, and Verlander and Price were the two best pitchers, and so, I mean, I'm not going to dispute that. But he was a part of uh, four division winners for the Angels, uh, most recently one being the one in 2014. Uh, In 2009, he had a really, let's not forget, an important win for the Angels in 2009, which was game two of the division series against my Red Sox. Uh, Josh Beckett, the Red Sox, had an early lead. The The Angels tied it on a Kendris Morales sack fly. And then in the seventh, they broke out. Uh, Mysuris Tourist got a single. Eric Ibar got a triple. The Angels went on to win that game 4-1 to one and would wind up winning the series, defeating their postseason nemesis that was the Red Sox. And he wound up pitching, starting a game and pitching game out of the bullpen in the ALCS where they wound up losing to the Yankees. Now, why am I bringing up Jared Weaver? Not just by the fact that he has one of my, I think one of the strangest introduction stories in baseball in that he was a, a number one draft pick by the Angels. He went to Long Beach State, a California kid from Northridge. Uh, his brother was Jeff Weaver, who was an established pitcher in the majors. In fact, Jeff Weaver, who had played with the Tigers and Yankees and the, uh, I believe he had pitched for the Dodgers. Yeah, he was with the Dodgers and then um, with the Angels. And Jared Weaver was tearing up the minor leagues, and they needed to find room for him on the roster in 2006. And so they dumped his brother, Jeff, got the got the axe, uh, to make room for Jared, which seems borderline cruel. Like, oh, you're, you got you got good news and bad news. You got a ticket to the major leagues, but it's at the expense of your brother. And Jared Weaver wound up going 11-2. and two. He struck out 105 batters and 123 innings pitch. He pitched very, very well, finished fifth in the Rookie of the Year vote. By the way, there is a happy ending. Jeff was picked up by the Cardinals that year and wound up winning Game 5 of the World Series which was the clinching game for the Cardinals. So don't feel that badly for Jeff. By the way, he also translated that into a huge contract, which didn't turn out that well for Seattle. But, you know, Jeff won a championship and became a multimillionaire. So let's not create a GoFundMe page for Jeff Weaver. But what happened with Jared Weaver is he became 
a reliable starter for the Angels, especially in the years where they kept going to the postseason. They won the division in 2007. He was one of their best starting pitchers. They won the division in 2008. He didn't have as great a year, but it was a solid contributor. They went to the postseason, the ALCS, in 2009. He was he and John Lackey were their top pitchers. They went to the playoffs in 2014. And he led the league in victories and innings pitched for the team. And there was a few years there where he was a legit ace, one of the elite starting pitchers in the game. And the only reason why he is not held with great esteem as a beloved starting pitcher of his era is the fact that the Angels never won the World Series while he was a starting pitcher for them. Now, I mentioned Josh Beckett. He beat Josh Beckett in that game. Now, Josh Beckett is one of the few pitchers to win a postseason series, a postseason uh, most valuable player, excuse me, with two different franchises. He did so. He was the World Series MVP with the Marlins in 2003 and was the ALCS most valuable player for Boston in 2007. The Red Sox wound up winning the World Series that year. You take a look at some pitchers like, you know, Cole Hamels, Brett Saberhagen. You know, these are pitchers that you look at and go like, oh, they were pitchers who had that great postseason moment. The the Dave Stewart's of the world, the Jack Morris's of the world, the Fernando Valenzuela's of the world. These are pitchers who are not Hall of Famers, had like Jeff like Jared Weaver, bursts of greatness where they were amongst the elites, but not for long enough to get into the Hall of Fame. And yet when you look at some of those pitchers, Hamels, as I mentioned before, Viola, Beckett, um, you look at some of these pitchers who have been the aces for a championship club, and they have that aura of being a winner, being a great one. I mean, when the, when the Angels won the World Series in uh, 2002, I mean, they're, who was who their best starting pitcher? You know, who was their ace on that team? Jared Washburn? He had a fine year. Ramon Ortiz? Was it Kevin Apier? Does anyone look at, at any of those names I just said and say, like, oh, man, when you think of great pitchers, when you think of great all-time pitchers, you think of great postseason pitchers, did I just name one? If the Angels had clicked in any of those years, in 07, they played the Red Sox, and they faced a Red Sox team that they wound up losing on a walk-off homer to Manny Ramirez in one of the games, and they were injured going into the postseason. In 08, they lost on a walk-off hit by Jed Larry to the uh, Red Sox. In 09, there was a couple of fluke plays that happened in extra innings against the Yankees. And if they had gone on to the World Series, would they have beaten the Phillies? In 2014, they lost two extra inning games in games one and two to the Royals. If a bounce here or a bounce there, they're up 2-0 instead of down 2-0, what do the Angels do? If Jared Weaver is the number one starter on a World Series winner, we're looking at Jared Weaver and looking at his career with the exact same numbers. And some people would put a check mark next to his name at his Hall of Fame ballot because they say, hey, look at look it. He was an elite pitcher for a period of time, and he carried his team to the title. Not saying that he would win or he would get in, 
But we would look at his career as something more than, oh, he had some nice years with the Angels. It's amazing what winning a title will do to your reputation in terms of being a big game pitcher and being a huge contributor. And in many ways, it wasn't the fault of Jared Weaver, who pitched well uh, in the postseason in 2009, and he pitched, he pitched well enough. He let up only three hits in seven innings, let up two runs in his one start against Kansas City. It wasn't his fault. But instead, no one's going to retire his number. If the Angels won the World Series in any of those years and he had the exact same career, man, number 36 would be on the wall in Anaheim. Instead, he'll get a nice hand. Maybe he'll do some broadcasting for them. Maybe he'll show up at fantasy camp. And when people say, oh, Jared Weaver, yeah, he was a pretty good pitcher, wasn't he? And he was. And he's worth saluting. Absolutely he was. And the only thing that separated him from some of the other pitchers I just mentioned was factors that he had no control over. So Jared Weaver, good career. I hope your brother picks up the tab whenever you go out to dinner. Let's see what team should have won for the Orioles, shall we? The Orioles were the Browns, the St. Louis Browns. Actually, their very first year, they were Milwaukee Brewers, 1901. They were the Milwaukee Brewers. Bet you didn't know that. Then they moved to St. Louis and became the Browns. And from 1902 until 1953, they were the second team in St. Louis. The only time they ever went to the World Series was in 1944, one of the war years. And, of course, they lost the World Series to St. Louis. They lost to the Cardinals. Even the one time they went to the pennant, they couldn't savor it for themselves. By the time they moved to Baltimore in 1954, and they were still a miserable team, they had no world championships to their name. Zero. Then in 1966, they made the World Series with Hank Bauer as their manager, Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson as their big stars, and they stunned the Los Angeles Dodgers with a four-game sweep, a decisive four-game sweep at that. Between 1969 and 1983, they made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trips to the postseason. They won three World Series titles in, that, in between 66 and 83, the only three in the team's history. They wound up losing two World Series, uh, three World Series, sorry, uh, to two of them to Pittsburgh in 71 and 79, of course, to the Mets in 69. Earl Weaver was the manager during most of that stretch, and he became one of the great managers in the history of baseball. When he retired, Joe Altabelli took over basically Earl's team and won another world championship in 1983. They were one of those teams that you just expected to be in the World Series. They were the opposite of the Browns. But 83 was a long time ago. Return of the Jedi came out then. We've already gone through another complete Star Wars trilogy, and we're working on another one. And they've not gone to the World Series since. In fact, they've only been to the League Championship Series three times since then. So, along the way, there have been some years where you look at, oh man, if only they could have won, if only they could have won. Now, I'm not going to include 1979. 
I'm not going to include 1979 because, well, everything seems so perfect for the Pirates to win that year. And many of the key players on that 79 team, including Eddie Murray, including Mike Flanagan, including Ken Singleton, were part of the world championship team in 1983 that also featured Cal Ripken. In many ways, that 83 team, the only thing that made it not perfect was the fact that Alta Belli was the manager and not Earl Weaver, but Earl Weaver already won a championship, so so go pound sand. When you look at the people who were on that team, Murray, Ripken, Bumbry, uh, Singleton, you had you know the the Benny Ayala's and Len Cicadas of the world. You had the Scott McGregors and Mike Boddickers and Mike Flanagan's and Jim Palmer and Denny Martinez and Tippy Martinez and Tim Stoddard, all these people who were classic Orioles were on that 83 team when they won. That was the perfect combination, the fact that Ripken was on that squad as well. Now, of course, they didn't win for years and years. And I've found myself looking at the teams and trying to figure it out because it's hard. They've never played a World Series in Camden Yards. Now, the 96 team stunned the Indians, and the Yankees were given a little bit of help from Jeffrey Meyer in 1996, but the Yankees were better in 1996. The team that won the AL East in 1997 went wire to wire, had David Johnson as their manager, had Ripken there, had Jimmy Key there, had the great Mike Mussina there, had a combination of players like you know, Hall of Famer Robbie Alomar, uh, potential Hall of Famer, Rafael Palmeiro, I'll just say that, Cal Ripken on the squad, and also Eric Davis. I mean, there were some players like Harold Baines and Pete Convilia. There's a lot of veterans on that squad. But Eric Davis was coming back from cancer treatment, and he came back to hit 304 and hit a bunch of home runs in 42 games. And Davis, who was a, you know, a great star from the 1980s, whose injuries and ultimately cancer helped derail his career, but was one of those guys who's impossible not to root for. Coming back from cancer and taking an Orioles team that went wire to wire, I mean, that's a pretty tough one to root against. It would have been a Cal Ripken-led championship in Camden Yards. That's kind of hard to beat. But I'm looking at another year. And the year, and of course, last year, they won 89 games with the second wild card team. And for reasons I'll never understand, Showalter in extra innings. We all know the game. Showalter was managing. He had Zach Britton, who was the best reliever in baseball, wasn't even close. And in an extra inning game, they never used him. With a season on the line, he could have gone to Britton or Ubalo Jimenez. Do you go with the best reliever possible Cy Young candidate or a guy who went 8-12 and 12 with an ERA of 5.44? When in doubt, go with your eighth best. And this was not something anyone screamed in retrospect. We were all yelling it as it happened. But the team in 2014 was interesting. You had Showalter. Yep. Showalter's never won. He has never won a World Series. That's the one thing on his resume he doesn't have. He turned the Yankees around, he turned the Diamondbacks around, turned the Rangers around, and they all went to the World Series the minute he left town. And then he was with Baltimore. And then you take a look at the team, 
And it was a strange team. Manny Machado was one of their big stars, but he was injured come the postseason time. Chris Davis was one of their big stars, but he, was, he wound up having a crap year that year. Caleb Joseph batted 207. But you still had Adam Jones, who was a solid player. You still had Steve Pierce, who was a terrific all-round player. You still had Nelson Cruz in his one year in Baltimore hitting the shit out of the ball. Sorry, sorry, Ray. You had a strange rotation with Chen and Norris and Yobaldo and Gosman and Chris Tillman. And you had Britton and O'Day and Tommy Hunter all basically anchoring this incredibly solid bullpen. You had a team where, as I said, the big marquee superstar, I mean, Jones, Cruz, and all that, like I mentioned, was Machado, who was out. He was out. And so they went in to play the Tigers, and they swept them in the division series. And that led to a matchup with Kansas City in the LCS. Now, a lot was on the line. And a lot could have been perfect for Baltimore in 2014 had they won. First of all, there would have been the little bit of a gentle middle finger to their new cousins. The Washington Nationals had the best record in the National League and looked like they were going to cruise to the pennant when they got hit by the buzzsaw that was the San Francisco Giants. And it was the Orioles who wound up beating the Tigers who were filled with big superstars and high expectations, and they just swept them. And with the Angels being swept by the Royals, you had Kansas City, who snuck in as a wild card team, won that wild one-game playoff with the A's, and Ned Yost and his 89-win Royals were facing Buck Showalter and the 96-win Orioles. And Yost had the reputation of not being the sharpest knife in the drawer in terms of strategy. And Showalter had the reputation of being the smartest guy in the room. Just ask him. And Showalter being the manager and Dan Duquette being the GM. Suddenly, this would have been the team for two guys who have bounced from organization to organization. Two guys who had the reputation of not always being the easiest guys to work with. But two guys who left in their wake solid teams. Dan Duquette and what he did with the Red Sox. All the credit seemed to go to Theo Epstein. But he had a huge thumbprint of the success of the 2004 Boston Red Sox. Showalter rebuilt the Yankees and the Diamondbacks into world champions. And if Nelson Cruz had timed his leap differently, the Rangers would have been the third team that he had left and his successor manager would have gone on to win a championship. And they all had won pennants. Neither Showalter or Duquette ever had one. And so a championship for Showalter, a championship for Duquette, would have been not only a great moment for Baltimore, not only would have been a great moment for the players on the field and redemption for Nelson Cruz, but would have made people re-examine the careers of Showalter and Duquette. 
suddenly the success in New York, Texas, and Arizona would be on the positive column for Showalter. Suddenly, Duquette's contributions to the 2004 Red Sox would have been embraced. And the Baltimore Orioles and their fans would have seen something that would have been decades in the making and a championship that the Oriole fans would have truly embraced. Yeah, that 97 team would have been great to see them win with all those stars and with Ripken and all of them. But do you want Ripken won a ring in 83. Davis won a ring in 90. Davey Johnson won a ring in 86. This would have been a gigantic coming out party. And yes, Machado would have to be watching it on the bench, but he, his contributions would have been there, and you would have had him be a champion along with Jones, along with Gosman, along with Britain. They would all have their names alongside all those Orioles I had just mentioned. Not just Ripken, but the Eddie Murrays and the Jim Palmers and the Brooks Robinsons and the Frank Robinsons and the Rick Dempseys, and the Mike Boddickers, and the Mike Flanagans, and all of them. They would have put their place alongside them. And Showalter, the conversation of whether or not he's a Hall of Fame manager would have validity. I'm not sure if he would be or not, but you'd have to say, hey, what didn't he accomplish? And I was absolutely, I picked the Orioles at the beginning of the postseason, and when they faced the Royals, I thought, they're going to make minced meat out of them. Absolute minced meat. And this is going to be an Orioles championship. And this is going to be the coronation of Buck Showalter. Instead, what happened? I bet you don't remember what happened. I know you know that the Royals wound up winning that series because the World Series was between San Francisco and Kansas City. In the first game... Baltimore fell behind 4-0, but then tied the game, and it went into extra innings. The Royals scored three in the uh, top of the 10th, uh, thanks to a home run by Alex Gordon. Mike Moustakas hit another homer. Um, the Orioles rallied in the 10th, but only could score one run. They wound up losing that game. The second game, the once again... You had an early Royals lead, but it was tied going into the ninth inning. The Orioles came back, but then it was double by Escobar, single by Kane, and they lost that game. So that's two games where it was tied in the ninth inning, and the Orioles lost both of them. In game three, they went back to uh, Kansas City. Orioles took an early 1-0 lead. Royals wound up winning the game 2-1. And then the final game, Kansas City scored two in the first, Orioles scored one in the third, and that was it. Four games, two of them were tied going into the ninth, two of them final score two to one. Every one of those games, bounce here, bounce there, fly ball here, ground out there, Orioles could have won all four of the games, at least split. But instead, all the bounces went Kansas City's way. And it was the Royals in the World Series instead of Baltimore. And I'm sorry, Giants. If that Baltimore team faced the Giants, they would have won. 
Because the Giants had Bumgarner and uh, did I mention Bumgarner? And I do believe the Orioles would have found a way to win the games not started by Bumgarner. And so there you go. Now the main reason, the main factor that I'm putting the emphasis on the 2014 Orioles over the 97 Orioles is this. The 97 Orioles had the sideways ornithologically correct bird hat and the 2014 Orioles had the smiling bird hat. I like the smiling bird hat. Ergo, the 2014 Orioles, the team that should have won. Well, I hope you're not that bored shopping. I did my best to entertain you. So go to sullybaseball.com. Like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Entertaining my bored friends and shopping malls now for five years. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast, recorded on the 22nd day of August. That's called the Daily Podcast. God damn it, I'm still doing it. For the 22nd day of August, 2017. Sorry, Ray. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. <laughs>